0: Chapter Sixty seven of The Death Shot. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Penn. The Death Shot by Thomas Main Reed. Chapter Sixty seven A Straying Traveller. A man on horseback making his way through a wood. Not on road, or trodden path, or trace of any kind for it is a tract of virgin forest in which settler's axe has never sounded rarely traversed by ridden horse still more rarely by a pedestrian he now passing through it rides as fast as the thick standing trunks and tangle of undergrowth will allow the darkness also obstructs him for it is night withal he advances rapidly though cautiously at intervals glancing back at longer ones delaying to listen with chin upon his shoulder his behavior shows fear, so too his face. Here and there, the moonbeams shining through the breaks in the foliage reveal upon his features bewilderment as well as terror. By their light, he is guiding his course, though he does not seem sure of it. The only thing appearing certain is that he fears something behind and is fleeing from it. Once he pauses longer than usual and, holding his horse in check, sits listening attentively. While thus halted, he hears a noise which he knows to be the ripple of a river. It seems oddly to affect him, calling forth an exclamation, which shows he is dissatisfied with the sound. "'Am I never to get away from it? "'I've been over an hour straying about here, "'and there's the thing still not a quarter of a mile off, "'in timber thick as ever. "'I thought that last shoot would have taken me out of it. "'I must have turned somewhere. "'No help for it, but try again.' Making a half-face round, he heads his horse in a direction opposite to that from which comes the sound of the water. He has done so repeatedly, as oft straying back towards the stream. It is evident he has no wish to go any nearer, but a strong desire to get away from it. This time he is successful. The new direction, followed a half mile further, shows him clear sky ahead, and in a few minutes more he is at the forest's outmost edge. Before him stretches an expanse of plain altogether treeless but clothed with tall grass, whose combs stirred by the night breeze and silvered by the moonbeams sway to and fro like the soft tremulous wavelets of a tropic sea. Myriads of fireflies prinkling among the spikes and emitting a gleam as phosphorescent medusae make the resemblance complete. The retreating horseman has no such comparison in his thoughts nor any time to contemplate nature. The troubled expression in his eyes tells he is in no mood for it. His glance is not given to the grass, nor the brilliant lightning-bugs, but to a dark belt discernible beyond, apparently a tract of timber similar to that which he has just traversed. More carefully scrutinized, it is seen to be rocks, not trees, in short a continuous line of cliff forming the boundary of the bottomland. He, viewing it, well knows what it is, and intends proceeding on to it, he only stays to take bearings for a particular place at which he evidently aims. His muttered words specify the point. The gulch must be to the right. I've gone up river all the while. Confound that crooked luck. It may throw me behind them going back. And how am I to find my way over the big plain? If I get strayed there. Ha! I see the pass now. Yon sharp shoulder of rock. It's there. Once more, settling his horse in motion, he makes for the point thus identified. Not now in zigzags or slowly, as when working his way through the timber, but in a straight, tail on end gallop fast as the animal can go. And now, under the bright moonbeams, it may be time to take a closer survey of the hastening horseman. In garb, he is an Indian, from the moccasins on his feet to the fillet of stained feathers surmounting his head but the colour of his skin contradicts the idea of his being an aboriginal his face shows white but with some smut upon it like that of a chimney-sweep negligently cleansed and his features are caucasian not ill-favoured except in their sinister expression for they are the features of richard darke knowing it is he it will be equally understood that the san saba is the stream whose sow is so dissonant in his ears as also why he is so anxious to put a wide space between himself and its waters on its bank he has heard a name and caught sight of him bearing it the man of all others he has most fear the backwoodsman who tracked him in the forests of mississippi now trailing him upon the prairies of texas simeon woodley ever pursuing him if in terror he has been retreating through the trees not less does he glide over the open ground though going in a gallop every now and then as before he keeps slewing round in the saddle and gazing back with apprehensiveness in fear he may see forms issuing from the timber's edge and coming on after none appear however and at length arriving by the bluff's base he draws up under its shadow darker now for clouds are beginning to dapple the sky making the moon's light intermittent again he appears uncertain about the direction he should take and, seated in his saddle, looks inquiringly along the façade of the cliff, scrutinizing its outline. Not long before his scrutiny is rewarded, a dark disk of triangular shape, the apex inverted, proclaims a break in the escarpment. It is the embrasure of a ravine, in short, the pass he has been searching for, the same already known to the reader. Straight towards it he rides, with the confidence of one who has climbed it before, in like manner he enters between its grim jaws and spurs his horse up the slope under the shadow of rocks overhanging right and left he is some twenty minutes in reaching its summit on the edge of the upland plain there he emerges into moonlight for luna has again looked out seated in his saddle he takes a survey of the bottomland below afar off he can distinguish the dark belt of timber fringing the river on both sides with here and there a reach of water between, glistening in the moon's soft light like molten silver. His eyes rest not on this, but stray over the open meadowland in quest of something there. There is nothing to fix his glance, and he now feels safe, for the first time since starting on that prolonged retreat. Drawing a free breath, he says, soliloquizing, "'No good my going further now. Besides, I don't know the trail, not a foot farther.' "'No help for it but to stay here till Borlass and the boys come up. "'They can't be much longer, unless they've had a fight to detain them, "'which I don't think at all likely, after what the half-blood told us. "'In any case, some of will be this way. "'Great God! "'To think of Sime Woodley being there. "'And after me, sure, for the killing of Clancy. Haywood too, and Harkness along with him. "'How is that, I wonder?' Can they have met my old jailer on the way and brought him back to help in tracing me? What the devil does it all mean? It looks as if the very fates are conspiring for my destruction. And who the fellow that laid hold of my horse? So like Clancy. I could swear it was he, if I wasn't sure of having settled him. If ever gun bullet gave a man his quietus, mine did him. And breath was out of his body before I left him. "'Sime Woodley is after me, sure, damned ugly brute of a blackwoodsman he seems to have been created for the special purpose of pursuing me, and she in my power to let her so slackly go again. I may never have another such chance. She'll get safe back to the settlements there to make mock of me. What a simpleton I've been to let her go alive. I should have driven my knife into her. Why didn't I do it? Ugh. As he utters the harsh exclamation, there is blackness on his brow and chagrin in his glance, a look such as Satan may have cast back at Paradise on being expelled from it. With assumed resignation, he continues, No good my grieving over it now. Regrets won't get her back. There may be another opportunity yet. If I live, there shall be, though it cost me all my life to bring it about another pause spent reflecting what he ought to do next. He has still some fear of being followed by Sam Woodley. Endeavoring to dismiss it, he mutters, "'Tisn't at all likely they'd find their way up here. They appeared to be afoot. I saw no horses. They might have them for all that, but they can't tell which way I took through the timber, and anyhow, couldn't track me till after daylight. Before then, Borlas will certainly be long." just possible he might come across woodley and his lot they'll be sure to make for the mission and take the road up the other side a good chance our fellows encountering them unless that begging fool bosley has let all out maybe they kill him on the spot i didn't hear the end of it and hope they have with this barbarous reflection he discontinues his soliloquy bethinking himself how he may best pass the time till his comrades come on at first he designs alighting and lying down for he has been many hours in the saddle and feels fatigued but just as he is about to dismount it occurs to him the place is not a proper one around the summit of the pass the plain is without a stick of timber not even a bush to give shade or concealment and of this last he now begins to recognize the need for all at once he recalls a conversation with borlas in which mention was made of Simon woodley the robber telling of his having been in texas before and out upon the san Saba, the very place now seen therefore the backwoodsman will be acquainted with the locality and may strike for the trail he has himself taken he remembers Syme's reputation as a tracker he no longer feels safe in the confusion of his senses his fancy exaggerates his fears and he almost dreads to look back across the bottomland thus apprehensive HE TURNS HIS EYES TOWARDS THE plain IN SEARCH OF A BETTER PLACE FOR HIS TEMPORARY BIVOUAC, OR, AT ALL EVENTS, A SAFER ONE. HE SEES IT. TO THE RIGHT, AND SOME TWO OR THREE HUNDRED YARDS OFF, IS A MOT OF TIMBER, STANDING SOLITARY ON THE OTHERWISE TREELESS EXPANSE. IT IS THE GROVE OF BLACKJACKS WHERE HAWKINS AND TUCKER HALTED THAT SAME AFTERNOON. THE VERY PLACE, SAYS RICHARD DARK TO HIMSELF AFTER SCRUTINIZING IT. THERE I'LL BE SAFE EVERY WAY can see without being seen it commands a view of the pass and if the moon keep clear i'll be able to tell who comes up whether friends or foes saying this he makes for the mot reaching it he dismounts and drawing the rein over his horse's head leads the animal in among the trees at a short distance from the grove's edge is a glade in this he makes a stop and secures the horse by looping the bridle around a branch he has a tin canteen hanging over the horn of his saddle, which he lifts off. It is a large one, capable of holding a half-gallon. It is three parts full, not of water, but of whiskey. The fourth part he has drunk during the day and earlier hours of the night to give him courage for the part he had to play. He now drinks to drown his chagrin at having played it so badly. Cursing his crooked luck, as he calls it, he takes a swig of the whiskey, and then steps back to the place where he entered among the blackjacks. There, taking stand, he awaits the coming of his confederates. He keeps his eye upon the summit of the pass. They cannot come up without his seeing them, much less go on over the plain. They must arrive soon, else he will not be able to see them, for he has brought the canteen along, and, raising it repeatedly to his lips, his sight is becoming obscured, the equilibrium of his body endangered. As the vessel grows lighter, so does his head, while his limbs refuse to support the weight of his body, which oscillates from side to side. At length, with an indistinct perception of inability to sustain himself erect, and a belief he would feel better in a recumbent attitude, he gropes his way back to the glade, where, staggering about for a while, he at length settles down, dead drunk. In ten seconds he is asleep, in slumber so profound that a cannon-shot even the voice of simeon woodley would scarce wake him End of chapter sixty-seven